Good morning and happy Easter. And it's such a privilege to be able to, to share God's word on Easter Sunday morning. So uh, it's interesting the things you think of as you're ending your tenure, the, thing, the little things that God has provided in your life. And some of you are experiencing that when you retire from work or when you leave a certain place and go on someplace else. And there are great memories, but it should never, never, ever preclude you from what God wants in store for you next. Right? When God closes one door, he always opens another door. And always remember that in your lives. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. This will be our jump-off point for this morning's message. Because John refers to something six times in these verses, in these six verses. Begin with verse 26. Let's all rise for the reading of God's word. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much for these words that were penned by John and how it describes an event that was very personal in the lives of the disciples. And thank you that their faith from that day grew even more so, even to the point of martyrdom. Thank you for that, Father. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations that are upon my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, near the end of the gospel according to John, John tells us directly the purpose of him writing his letter or his book. Look at verse 30 of the passage we just read. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And some of those other things are recorded in the synoptic gospels, the other three gospel accounts. Verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe, and that's the key word, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now the Bible here informs us that it is important to believe not only believe, but to believe in the right things. This morning, we should be taking a look at the basic tenets of our Christian faith. One of the things that sets Christians apart from all others is our belief and our belief system, the things we believe. Now, the early church recognized this, and so they wrote creeds. Now, creeds are formal statements of belief. And these usually happen when there was turmoil beginning in the church, the church at large. And so the leaders got together and they formed a statement saying, this is what we believe. Make sure everybody in the church believes and endorses these things. So we have the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the three creeds written by the early church that was essential to the development of Christian doctrine based upon the Word of God. The other two are the Nicene Creed and the definition or Creed of Chalcedon. Those three creeds put together sort of tells us what we are to believe. 
and they helped establish the pattern of orthodoxy over the centuries. Now, the word faith and belief are similar words. Nelson's Bible Dictionary defines faith as a belief in or confident attitude toward God involving commitment to his will for one's life. That's what the Nelson Bible Dictionary says. Nelson also says belief is a place one puts trust in God's truth, his word. Now the word, the Greek word for belief means confidence, it means trust, but it also implies not just faith that is knowledge, not just belief that is knowledge, but believing into something. So the word faith or belief implies that you have a relationship with whom you believe or what you believe. I read a story about a man named Jack uh, Bukema, and he related the story through his son. And so when he was a, a young man, he was given a diamond uh, by his grandfather. It was, a grandf- it was his grandmother's diamond ring, which his grandfather then gave to his grandson, Jack. And Jack took it, and he embedded it into a ring that he wore on his hand. And he wore it everywhere. It became a family heirloom or a family piece. And so one day, um, as circumstances would have it, Jack was encountered by some robbers, some thieves. And they had a gun. They pointed a gun at him. And they said he, they wanted his stuff. And so he willingly obliged them and gave him his money clip with money in it. Gave him his wallet. And then he had a watch on that was given to him by his son, a valuable watch. But he took it off and gave it to them. He gave them everything he had in his possession at that point in time. And then they asked for the ring. And he said about the ring, you're going to have to come and take it. Now, fortunately, he survived that incident with the ring. But when the policemen came, uh, the investigative officers came, they called him an idiot. They said, you're an idiot. The next time somebody robbed you, give them everything. Just don't take the chance. Give them everything. But he was unwilling to give him the one thing he valued in terms of his possession above all else, even at the cost, possible cost of his life. And that got his son to thinking. And this is what his son thought. Is there something I possess that I am willing to die for in order to keep it as my possession? Is there something I value more than my own life? What is it in your life that you possibly value more than your own life? Is there anything? Is there a belief that you have that you value more than your own life? Is there something that you grasp so very dearly that you believe to be so true and so important that you would be willing to forfeit your life for it, anything in your life. Now, I can think of two things. The one thing I would be willing to forfeit my life for is my family. I have no question about that. I've often thought about scenarios like that. Go to the beach with my family. I said, boy, one of my grandkids, or at the time my daughters were dying out there. I mean, I would forfeit my life for them. I had no question of that in my mind. The second thing would be my faith. I am 100% sure I would forfeit my life for my family. I am 99% sure 
I would not recant my faith. I mean, I believe it. I believe it's that dear to me, but I have that 1% wonderment. Is it really that important to me? I don't know, I think that's a healthy thing to at least consider the fact that you could recant. I hope that I wouldn't. Kayla Mueller was an American humanitarian and devout follower of Jesus. And she was kidnapped or captured by the Islamic State. And then in February of 2015, they confirmed her death. And she went through an ordeal. And her family later said, you know, because they saw at least one short video of her uh, sent to her parents. And um, they said that she went through quite an ordeal. And what the Islamic State captors wanted her to do on film was to recant her faith and convert to Islam. That's what they kept pressuring her to do, and they wanted to record it, and they wanted to show it across America. And she refused to do it. And she died because of it. Would you be willing to do that? Is your faith something you possess your belief, something you possess that is so valuable to you that you'd be willing to forfeit your life. It was for Kayla Mueller. And I hope and pray that it would be so for me. You know, whenever I read about Christians who are willing to die because of their faith, it makes my faith seem so small. Not insignificant, not inconsequential, just small. We're not, we're not confronted with that here in the U.S. We're confronted with other things that challenge our faith, and sometimes in the presence of those things, our faith grows kind of small. Not inconsequential, not unimportant, just small. It's estimated that more people have been martyred for Christ in the past 50 years than in the existence of the church's first 300 years. 50 years. The last 50 years in modern in the modern world, more people have been martyred or killed for their faith than the first 300 years of the church. And we think of the first 300 years with Nero and, and the Roman persecution and the Jewish persecution as, man, monumental persecution and death, not compared to today. This just Easter, you know, in Sri Lanka, 138 people lost their lives through bombings. And the principal target of the bombings were churches. And it's a form of now persecution as groups of people, radical groups of people, representing, representing maybe faiths that don't pronounce this. They're asking Muslims, or asking Christians in, in Sri Lanka to convert back to Islam. And for some, it's been at the cost of their life. And they've refused to recant. It's going on today, even in our sister churches in Sri Lanka. And it just happened this Easter, so they're a day ahead of us. What exactly are we supposed to believe? I want you to take a few moments as you sit there, and I want you to think about what is it that I really believe? What is it that I believe so very dearly, embrace so very clearly, that I'd be willing to die for it? And I've asked Jason Chua, along with the worship team, to sing a meditative song. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a big song. But it's a song about belief. And while the song is being sung, what is it that you believe that you'd be willing to die for? Let's pray. 
Father God, we ask in Jesus' name that you really make it clear in our hearts and minds what we as Christians are supposed to believe. What is it that we're supposed to embrace, even to the point of death? That it be that important to us, Father. And so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that as we look into the Word this morning and as we sit in your presence, you'll help us firm up those things which you are supposed to believe with all of our hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that's been a real blessing over the years is God has just blessed our church with so much talent in a, in a multitude of different ways, including vocalists and people who have, who have the gifts of playing instruments. Thank you all your parents for investing all those money in music lessons. Uh, really, I, some of my, I see the kids playing instruments, and I'm, I wonder, you know, maybe God someday is going to use them as, uh, as people who help lead worship. And what finer way of using the training you've had, the musical training you have, and that's something I think I like, love to see kids aspire to, as someday they'll be able to help the church family uh, worship the Lord in music. So thank you. What do we believe? What is it that we should believe? And these are the things that I hope our church family would never leave in terms of their belief. Now, first of all, we believe in one creator God. We believe in one creator God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a a Shema of God. It's supposed to be repeated on a daily basis by everyone who was faithful to Judaism. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's supposed to be shared from parent to child. And this is what the beginning says in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. Now there they mean he is the preeminent God, but it also means there are no other gods. There is just one God, and he is one God. Ephesians 4, 6 says this in the New Testament. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One God. One God. We are monotheists. Now, we believe in the fact that there is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, nevertheless, one God. Do I understand it? Absolutely not. It escapes me. My finite mind cannot comprehend a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is one God, but he is because the Bible says so. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, there's the expression of the Trinity. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our one triune God. And in no way can I even begin to explain how he exists in such a fashion. He just does. By the way, there there should be some things that you cannot explain about your faith. Because if you can explain everything there is about God, then he is not God. Because you can explain him. And so there should be some mystery in our God. Some things we don't understand, like, how are you one God? And yet, your Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Bible declares it, and so it is so. We also believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is sort of a subdivision of one God. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says this, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And so there are gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are deployed at the Spirit's bidding and not our own. 
And these gifts empower us to do the ministry that God desires us to do in this day. So we believe in one creator God, one God. There are no other gods. Secondly, we believe in Jesus as fully human and fully God. Jesus is fully human and fully God. The Gospel of John was written with this purpose in mind. John wrote in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, which we declared earlier. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That Jesus is God, fully God, but he's also Messiah, the Son of God, fully human. How does that exist? That's the second thing. It's two things I've shared with you and two things I can't explain. I can't explain his full deity and his full humanity. I think it's inexplicable. But I can understand it by faith. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Fully God, fully, fully human. It's the incarnation of Christ, which we celebrate every Christmas, which then requires us to believe in the virgin birth. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So a subset of the fact that we believe Jesus is fully God and fully human is he was born of a virgin. How does that happen? That's a third thing I can't explain this morning. Right? The Holy Spirit formed Jesus in Mary's womb. That's as good as I can explain it. And therefore, he is fully God and he is fully human. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is fully capable of forgiving us our sins because he's fully God. And it means that Jesus understands exactly where we are in life because he is fully human. A very relatable God is Jesus. And it means that we can justifiably worship Jesus today as our Savior and Lord. So we believe in one creator God. We believe that Jesus was fully human and fully God. Third thing we believe is we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus. Of Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Pastor Rocky preached about this this morning at our sunrise service. The resurrection of Jesus. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Verse 12 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain or futile. So we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It, wasn't, it was a body resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection. Now, Easter 2017, I preached a message uh, about the evidence uh, for his resurrection. Uh, and there are books out. I mean, there's more evidence for his bodily resurrection uh, than, than one could even begin to imagine because I think God wanted us to be able to cognitively understand that indeed Jesus was raised from the grave. Right? He was raised from the grave. He was bodily raised from the grave. And there's plenty of evidence for enough to actually convince a jury to, to, to render a verdict that, hey, the grave was empty, 
and Jesus was raised from the grave bodily. Now, when you, if you ever leave Evergreen, attend another church, one of the things you make sure they teach and preach there is Jesus was bodily resurrected from the grave. Bodily resurrected from the grave. He conquered death for humanity. I had a, a pastor friend who went to a seminary, and um, he was in a class of about 30, 35 seminarians about to become pastors. And only two of them believed two things. Right? Two of them believed there is a heaven and therefore a hell. And only two of the class believed that, the, that Jesus was raised from the grave. None of the other future pastors believed that. So be careful where you go and worship. And just inquire about the things we should believe and make sure that's what they teach at the church you attend and call your home. And one is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. What, is, what does it mean for us to have him bodily resurrected? In 2013, Google vowed to solve death. I shared this before. Google. Google can do anything, huh? Google is everywhere. All right. The longest any human being has lived to history is, how long do you think the longest, human, how the longest um, tenure a human has had on earth? Post-scripture. Recorded by the Guinness World Book of Records. 122 years and 164 days. That's one record I hope I don't break. I don't want to live to be 123. Right. In September of 13th of 2013, and this is the magazine that's up on the screen, uh, Google and its CEO, Larry Page, at the time, were funding a company that will try to extend human lifespan and solve the diseases of aging, and they call it diseases of aging. More recently, I read an article from Australia at TOTT or TOT News, and they reported this once again. Virtually the same story. This is just that, this year, 2019. Now, the death-occurring company Time is referring to is called Calico. And as far as I know, they're still in existence. According to the press release put out by, at the same time as, as the article, Calico will focus on health and well-being, in particular, the challenge of aging and associated diseases. Calico's CEO and founding investor is Arthur D. Levinson, the former CEO of Genetech, the biotech corporation. Levinson has been given a new role to alter the basic nature of human existence to help people live longer. But if you're looking for more details about Calico from uh, Time's exuberant cover story, don't bother. All Google offers is, following about, is the following. And this is kind of interesting. Okay, so you're probably thinking, wow, that's a lot of different, different from the, what Google does today. And you're right. But we, as we explained in our first letter to shareholders, there's a tremendous potential for technology more generally to improve people's lives. So don't be surprised if we invest in projects that seem strange or speculative compared to our existing internet businesses. That's Google warning its investors. We're going to do some things different. Why? Because we want to solve death. All right, so they created a $1.5 billion research center, and that's what they're trying to do. But think about it. What they're really trying to do is what? You can't solve death. What they're trying to do is just prolong life. But as far as we who are believers are concerned, because death has already been resolved for us. There's already a solution to death. Death has already been conquered. 
by the resurrection. Because we know when we die here on earth, there is life eternal in the presence of God. That's the best solution that you could possibly have about death, isn't it? One of the things I'm fearful of in our society today, and just as I'm growing older and as I live in a retirement community, people are living longer so they have quantity of life, but are they having a corresponding, cor- corresponding quality of life? Preferably, I don't want to live 23 years in a bed, not being able to do anything. So you may prolong life, but you may not prolong the quality of that life. For me, as for me, it's better to be promoted to heaven and have a new life in Christ, a resurrected life. And so if you're looking for a solution to to death, you've already found it in Jesus. And it's called the resurrection. Where you and I, upon death, from this life on earth, will be given a brand new body. And we're going to live forever in that body. That is the solution to earthly death not living a few years longer. So that's what the resurrection gives us, and this is what we believe. Fifthly, or fourthly, we believe that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. No one gets into heaven because they're a good person. No one gets entry into the kingdom of God called eternity, in eternity called heaven because they've done good works. Even if Mother Teresa, who most people feel has done, a, has done an incredible amount of good works, if Mother Teresa was depending on her good works to get her into heaven, she wouldn't get there because it's not based on works, but it's based on faith. And one of the things that you hear people say every once in a while is, they're such a good person. How could God condemn them to hell? Because they're such a good person. No one is good enough to get into heaven. It takes an intermediary to get you there. Like somebody wants to take me to a, um, what was that club at, at Disneyland that nobody gets into? You know what club I'm talking about to go eat? So somebody came and said, you want to go into that club? I cannot get into that club by myself. I can go up there and say, I'm the pastor. I'm the retired pastor of Evergreen SGV. That just give me a funny look. You know, put, on, put back on my ears and just go prancing through, uh, I guess it's through Tomorrowland. No, no, not Tomorrowland. Adventureland. I think that's where it's located. But if someone who has whatever you have to get in there invites me and becomes my intermediary, I can get in, even though I myself don't deserve it. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He's your intermediary to get you into this place called heaven. And without heaven, you don't get there. Without Jesus, you don't get there. Getting us to the fifth point. We believe in salvation by faith in Christ alone. Salvation by faith in Christ alone. Ephesians 2. This is a natural segue. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. In fact, turn to that in your Bibles or in your devices. It's an important two verses. It teaches us a very important truth about what we believe. 
Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by or through me. Christ and Christ alone. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And there is a place called hell. Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46 says this, And he, this is Jesus speaking, And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's a hard passage, isn't it? But it's part of what we believe. There is a heaven and there is a hell. How do we know that? The Bible says so. You know, uh, I'll make comment about this later, but there are the, the class that um, my friend was in, that 30-some-odd students, and only two of them believed that there was a heaven and a hell. Basically, what they believe is that there was no hell, only heaven. And today, part of the church that's emerging teaches that. The one theologian you have to be careful of is a guy named Rob Bell. And don't read him, all right? Because that's what he believes. There is no hell, only heaven. I very seldom name people from the pulpit. I'll name him. And anybody who follows Rob Bell, you should be suspicious of. Rob Bell. All right. I bought some of his books and this other guy's book, and I didn't want to add to their economy, so I went on, on Amazon to look for it used. I got it for a nickel. <laughs> Tom Shaw would be proud of me. I got it for a nickel, all right? It was all marked up and stuff, but it was only a nickel. All right. oh, where was I? I shouldn't have been talking about money. Yeah. So we believe everyone is a sinner. We believe in salvation by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Sixthly, we believe in the authority of God's word. We believe in the authority of God's word. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. Now think about it. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows that this is going to be his final prayer for his disciples, not just the 12, but all of us. And this is one of the things he prayed. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them or make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that every man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we believe in the inerrant Word of God in the original text, that the Word of God, the Bible, is without error. Now, there's only going to be a certain percentage of churches that believe and teach that. And I think this is something that you should be very aware of and then very wary of if you were to ever look for another church. Make sure they believe in an inerrant word of God. Now, there's a differentiation I need to make here. And the 
seminary I went to believes in the differentiation, not this. This is what they believe. And so pastors are being trained this way. They believe that the Bible is without error only in matters of faith and works. But in other stuff, it could have errors. Now the question comes in, what's the other stuff? And slowly but surely, the other stuff is actually things about faith and works. And that's why I spend time teaching the, the uh, youngins in our church, junior high and high school, I teach them creation and how I can argue for creation over, over evolution uh, without referring to the Bible very much. And I use my science background. There is absolutely no evidence for evolution. It's a, it's a hypothesis. It's a theory which takes a tremendous amount of faith. I put out the challenge again to two schools, uh, through two students. I'll debate their bio teacher on the, um, on about creation versus evolution. They take the evolutionary viewpoint, I'll take the creation, and I won't use the Bible very much. And we'll just debate on the merits of science. Right? And people don't want to take up that debate because it's largely unwinnable on the side of evolution. If you have questions about that, just come see me, okay? I'll talk to you about it. I'll give you a paper on it. The Bible is completely reliable, trustworthy, and truthful. Now, hear me very closely on this. You can believe and practice things that are not in the Bible as a believer. Things that aren't here and maybe even contradictory to what the Bible says. And you can choose to practice them. And that is your choice. You can practice things like, you can practice uh, ways, lifestyles that are contrary to the scriptures. You can practice, you can, you can believe that there are no roles for males and females. And you can believe that. You can believe that, that uh, marriage is not just between one man and one woman. You can believe that. Uh, you can believe that it's a woman's right to, uh, to abort a child. It's their right to have a choice. You can believe that. Right? That's your choice. But if you were to say to me, you believe this because it's part of your faith, I would take exception to it. Because that is not found. None of those three positions are found in the Word of God. And that, if you want to sit and chat about, I'd be happy to. Every pastor I've ever talked about with those three passages, or those three subjects, they argue from the, po from the po point of view of culture, not the Bible. All three of those positions are cultural positions. They are not biblical positions. And so all we got to do is go through the text. How do you then explain what the Bible says here? And this is where you get a glimpse as to whether or not a person really believes that the Bible is the inner word of God in matters of faith and works even. And I think this has been the great departure of churches today. And if I have one counsel to my kids and my grandkids, when you go to a church, make sure they, they trust the word of God. One of the things that we're having challenges with is when a, one of our kids go to a Christian university and the Christian university doesn't teach this, that becomes problematic. I would prefer our kids going to a secular university than to a Christian university that doesn't teach the Bible as trustworthy. Because at least when they go to a secular university, they know to be on guard. 
when they go to a Christian university and get taught this, they think that the Christian university is teaching truth. Same applies to high schools, Christian high schools. In fact, hear this, always be on guard. Always determine, are they really speaking out of the Word of God? Is their position based on something that I can see in God's Word? And there's a danger in saying, well, the Bible is cultural, and it has culturally influenced so much that you can't depend on it. Because Jesus brought, God brought Jesus and salvation through a culture. So be really careful when you begin to utilize that particular argument for other things in life. So it saddens me that I even have to say things like this from the pulpit. But it's very true. It is immensely true in our society today. What is, what is a pastor, what is a church's position on God's word? Is it fully trustworthy? Or do you begin to make exceptions on how you live your life because you don't agree with what the scripture says because it's contrary to what culture is telling you? And one of the reasons why I really was blessed that God chose Pastor Rock is Rocky. Pastor Rocky is a man of, of the word. He trusts the word of God as it is written. And that's going to serve our church family well over the years. Finally, we believe in the second coming of Christ. We believe in the second coming of Christ. Oh, by the way, if you run into people who are part of churches and they don't agree with certain things you believe because of the Bible, don't, just, don't argue with them. Love them. Right? And just gently point out why you believe what you believe and leave it to the Holy Spirit to convict people if they truly want to figure out what the Word of God says. But also means that you have to be articulate with the Word of God. You have to kind of understand what it says about these things. Be like the men of Issachar you know, who understood the times and were able to address it via the Word. All right, we also believe in the second coming of, of Christ. Matthew 24. Turn to Matthew 24. We believe in the second coming of Christ. Verses 42 and 40 to 44. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the dead of the house, if the head dead of the house, the head of the house had known at what time of the night that the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour when you do not think he will. Jesus is coming back. I love the um, Easter celebration because they teach the full spectrum of the gospel. And one of the things they teach is he's coming back. Maranatha, he's coming back, the Bible says. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus. He can return any moment in any generation. Trying to guess his actual return date is an exercise in futility. So if you ever go someplace and the, and the person says, maybe you're at a conference, I know when Jesus is coming back. I know the date. I know the hour. I don't follow that person because nobody knows according to Scripture. We know the times, maybe the age, but not the precise time. By the way, I think we're in the last times. And if I'm wrong, it's okay because everybody is supposed to believe that, that Jesus' return is eminent to their generation. But I believe it is. And I believe at the moment Israel became a nation again, the, the, the final clock started ticking. You realize the enormity of that, of that impossibility 
that Israel become a nation again? But it did. So I think that, that Jesus' return is indeed imminent. It is close at hand. And we need, to, we need to be prepared to suffer if suffering is necessary when the Antichrist takes over the world and if Christians have not been raptured or taken to heaven. Be prepared. Prepare your kids for that. In other words, are you willing to die for what you believe? Is what you believe so near and dear to you, so believable to you, that you're willing to perish rather than recant that which you believe and the relationship you hold so dearly with Jesus? We believe in one creator, God. We believe Jesus is fully human and fully God. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. We believe everyone is a sinner and needs salvation. And we believe that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ. Faith not works. We believe in the authority of God's word. And we believe in the second coming of Christ. Now there are other things we believe that are profoundly true in the scriptures. But these are some of the basic things. These are the things we should be willing to die. If someone says, recant this stuff, you'll say, I cannot. Even at the point of death. I can only hope that I'm as courageous as Kathy Kayla Mueller and the other saints across the globe right now who are perishing, who are perishing for the sake of the gospel. Now, there are people, this is, sometimes this is beyond my comprehension. There are people who are going to nations where they know they will be persecuted in order to share the gospel. And they know they can potentially die. Somehow that's sometimes beyond my thinking, my ability to comprehend. I can't wrap my head around it. But thanks be to God for those as they pave the way for the way in which we should at least believe with all of our hearts. And if you believe the things that I shared this morning and you haven't asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you can begin your dying today by dying to self and accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord. And on this Easter Sunday, I consider it a privilege to be able to offer to anyone through the gospel salvation in Jesus, faith in Christ and Christ alone. Let's all pray, and specifically, I'd like to invite anyone who has never asked Jesus to be their Savior and Lord to do so this morning, to invite Jesus into their heart and life, and then begin their walk with Christ. It won't be a perfect walk, but it will definitely be a, a walk with Jesus because he promises, he promises to answer this particular prayer. So if you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, would you do so this morning, this Easter morning, by repeating this prayer after me and making it your own? Here's the prayer, silently in your heart. God will hear it. Dear Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died on a cross, that you rose from the grave. I am a sinner. I confess my sins. I ask you into my life as my Savior and Lord. Now, if you close off that prayer with an amen, and everyone just keep their eyes closed and just meditate and be praying for people who still need to know Jesus Christ. If you prayed that prayer with me, all eyes are closed. Would you raise your hand so our pastors can see it? They're the only ones who have their eyes open right now. Raise your hand and raise it high so one of our pastors can see it, that you have confessed your faith in Christ this day, this Easter day. 
Father God, we pray that, that there are some who have confessed their faith and just can't seem to raise their hands at this point in time. We pray for them, for them Father, that their faith will become more and more genuine as each day passes. And thank you that we can continue to worship you freely in this country and help us to believe the things that we should believe, to embrace it, and to never leave it. We thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.